I am so uh, delighted that you're here to worship with us. If you have a Bible, let's go to the eighth book of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, love story from God to us. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, eighth book. Some say the eighth book, seven being the perfect number, it's like a new beginning, and it is. Any of you wish you could start over and have a new beginning? Yeah, like uh, you ever been to the bank saying, can we just start this loan over again? I mean, it's not going so well. Yeah, anybody done that with their kids? We'd like to stuff you back in, rebirth you, and try again. That's right. That's right. Now, some mothers walk up to me at the prayer corner and go, you know, now I know why some animals eat their young. You know, I am ready with this kid. I am just done, you know. So, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, you're getting your Bibles open. I'm giving you moments here to find Ruth. You're going, Joshua, Judge, I couldn't keep up. If you get to 1 Samuel, too far. Just go back a little bit to Book of Ruth, okay? Four chapters. It's like four pages in my Bible. Not a very big book. Do any of you say, I'm going to read through the Bible, and then you say, okay, I can't read really big books, so I'm not going to read the biggest book because I'll never get through it. Everybody done that? So I need to be able to say, I read a whole book of the Bible, Right? Ruth's one of those, because you can do it in four pages. But it's a wonderful story of the love of God towards us and human love, love revolution. So Father, open our hearts to hear your word today, I pray, to embrace it as our own, to know that it is the inspired word from you uh, by means of the Holy Spirit, godly authors. It is perfect and holy, and it is for our hearts. Change us, we pray. May we leave here as different people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's the story of Ruth. See if I can do it in two minutes. Last week I tried and did it in like four. So I, I lied in church. Any, any rest of you have lied in church? Just me. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's this young couple living in Bethlehem, the Holy Land. We call Judah, sometimes called Israel. Their names are Elimelech and Naomi. They have two sons. But there's a famine that breaks out in the land. These people are property owners, probably people of substance. Um, they don't like being hungry. So they move south and east outside of Judah, outside the land that's God's uh, chosen piece of property. And they move to a land called Moab. Say Moab. Moab. Say it like it's nasty, like it's outside. Say Moab. Yeah. Okay, you've got it now. So they move to the land of Moab. Okay. And when they get there, the boys grow up, go to the school districts, fall in love with girls, get married. But now they're married to Moabite women who uh, believe in false gods and all, all kinds of wicked stuff. And so they're, now they're not just in Moab. Moab is becoming in them. Elimelech dies in the process of this. He, he, he just, uh, we're not sure what happens. He just dies. Ten years later, um, the two boys who've married these two girls from Moab, those two boys die. And then Naomi, the mother uh, and mother-in-law did in this case, she finds out back in Bethlehem that the food's come back and the crops are better, so she wants to move back. So she goes to move back, but the daughters now kind of feel responsible for her because they need to take care of her. And she says, oh yeah, it's bad for you because you lost your husbands, I know, but it's even worse for me. I lost my husband and I lost my sons. So you... For you, it's bad. For me, it's worse. And she sings the hymn, Gloom, Despair, Agony on Me. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Guess I'll go eat worms. You know, it's just what she's thinking about herself. 
Well, the girls take off and they're going to go back to Bethlehem. Halfway there, she stops and says to the two girls, look, just go back to Moab. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. Marry, have babies, have a good life. Pretend this never happened. So one of the girls, Orpah, says, okay, kisses her goodbye. I got out of here. Got my pass. We never hear from Orpah again. But there's this one girl, her name's Ruth. She says, no, I'll stay with you. This is significant. She says, I'll stay with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She's essentially saying, I believe in the God that you believe in, the God of the Bible, actually, the real God. All the others are false gods. So Ruth stays with Naomi. They go back into Bethlehem. You can just imagine the stir. They see, and this is where we left the story last week. Naomi walks into town. They go, isn't that Naomi? It's been a long time, but she... And where's your husband? And where, why are you having this foreign girl with you? What's the deal with that? And that's where chapter one ends. We're going to pick it up in chapter two. But here's the big idea of last week. Big idea, number one <clears throat> is this. Relationships are nearly impossible without faith and without commitment. And, and here's the deal. You have to have faith in God, great faith in God. But you have to have commitment to the relationship. If you don't have commitment to the relationship, it's not going to work. Now, here's the deal, and this isn't even the sermon. This is free, and that's why I gave you opening notes, just to write whatever you want. Here's the deal. Our commitment-phobic society today is going to be the downfall of the country. Get, mark my words. It'll be the downfall of the country. God only gives us three institutions, Really? Jot this down. This is free, not in the notes. God gives us the family. God gives us the church. He ordains the church. He only gives us three, and he gives us human government. Okay? And when you take one of those, it's like taking one of the, stool, one of the legs off of a three-legged stool. What's it going to do? It can't help but fall. Okay? You take away the family from that, and that's the commitment issue. And if you don't have commitment, because I, I mean this all the time, people that are living together, they've got children, they say, but I just can't commit to her. But you did. His name is Herman. <laughs> he looks just like you. So you've got to be committed, because he'll, he'll grow up and be more wholesome, and he'll understand commitment. That will affect, if you can't do that, you won't get commitment to the country. You won't get commitment to the church, if you don't have it at the base. You see, great churches are built upon great families. Great nations are built upon really solid churches. When the church goes down, you can plan the nation will be next. See, this is, this is serious business. It's not even in text. We're not even near it in chapter 2 yet. This is all free. And it's not on the clock either, just so you know. All right. Now, we're to chapter 2. You don't have faith. You don't have commitment. You're going to be in trouble. But... That faith and commitment can kind of be cold and calculated. So today what I want to talk about is romance. Because with commitment and faith is wonderful, but it can be like cold steel. It's just not, you know, it's not going to hold the relationship. So you need romance. Now, I don't know a lot about romance. I know what it's not. Okay? Take a look at this. Hi, my name is Dan, and... I am romantically challenged. Hi, Dan. Dan, I want you to share your feelings, even though it goes against everything you stand for as a man. I tried the trick that Jerry taught us last week. <laughs> a trick is what a two-bit magician does at a county fair. Jerry was given a technique, and a technique... Hey, Dr. Phil, let him finish. 
So anyway, I decided I'd use Jerry's technique last week when my wife came to me all exasperated and pulled her hair out and whatnot about her job. And I used Jerry's words exactly. I said, now honey, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to listen or fix it? And what'd she say? Listen. Fix it. And so anyway, I tried to listen. I really did. But in the middle of listening, I came up with a seven-point plan to fix it. I'm so ashamed. It's okay, Dan. Hey, you're multitasking, all right? And that is very hard for your untrained, one-track man brain to do. Feel proud of that, all right? Who's next? Hey, I'll go. Uh, hey, guys, I'm Jerry, and uh, I'm a romantically challenged. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Jerry. This weekend, I saw some extra charges on Cindy's bank card. So, yeah. But I, uh, you know, instead of yelling and screaming like I normally would, uh, I acted in a more Christ-like manner. Yeah. Yeah. So I simply turned over her nightstand and her scrapbooking table and said, Get out of here, money changer! (laughs) I think when it says that we should love our wives like Christ loved the church, that means that we're supposed to serve and sacrifice. Hey! I was cleansing the temple. I was cleansing the temple! I think the question is, how many of you have ever done anything for your wife without desiring anything in return? Are you even married? Jesus wasn't married. Now look, the point I'm trying to... No, I'm not, and that stings a little bit. I have read a lot, well, parts of a lot of relationship books, and if anyone thinks they can lead this group better than I can, put your hand down, Jerry. Who wants to go next? Oh, uh, bathroom break isn't it yet. I'm sorry, I gotta go. Sorry, guys. Oh, Mr. Big Guy doesn't want to share, does he? Not tonight. Probably doesn't care about his wife. Okay, um, I'll share. Um, okay. Um, this is a picture of my wife and kids. Um, I've been married for 20 years. We married young, and I don't regret it. I remember um, when we got engaged, her father looked at me and he said, just love her the way Christ loved the church. I smiled and said I would, having no idea what that meant. And I still don't know if I understand it. But you know what I want? I want to be a man who wakes up every morning and asks the question, how can I bless my wife? Men, isn't that what you want? I mean, isn't your wife worth it? Hey, wait. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Sit down, Jerry. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Okay, enough. Sit down. What? What is? What is going on? Sit down. Please sit down. I need a wife. You can almost close in prayer, couldn't you? (laughs) It's that good. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That's our hero. He walks in. He is a man of standing, verse 1 says. Uh, another version says a man of valor. Another says a mighty man of valor. That name is used attached to Gideon. He's, Boaz may have been a veteran, for all we know. We think that he was a warrior, kind of like Gideon was. He was of exemplary character and of, of skill, significant to note. I think also significant to note about that phrase, a man of standing, is that Boaz will use that same trait about Ruth. He will say she's a woman of standing or a woman of valor, chapter 3, verse 11. And she's a woman of excellence, of virtue, of wonderful internal beauty. Okay, First Peter talks about that, women, uh, women of internal beauty. And the principle is you attract what you are. You don't attract what you're not. You attract what you are. He knew he wanted a partner who possessed the same character, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite uh, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone <clears throat> in whose eyes I find favor. Ruth and Naomi, probably when they got to town, were probably broke. And Ruth learned about this thing she could do in the field. It's called gleaning. It was to run the edges of the field. After harvesters had worked a field and the ox had turned a corner, there's that little edge of the field that gets left. By law, Levite law, and by custom, they were to leave that for the unemployed people. That was their way of having a kind of a welfare workfare. It provided um, something for them to do, and it also provided a way for them to eat. So it was their way to keep dignity as well. And so Ruth went to the field to glean the field. And um, <clears throat> fair crop owners would do that. They would leave that just like the law said. But greedy crop owners would not. They would actually hire people to clean up the, and glean the field themselves and get the profit. Understand this, that greed is not just the disease of the poor. It is really, if you don't write anything else down, it is the plague of the rich. Okay? Because you never have enough. Ruth didn't want Naomi to serve her, so she gets to this country. Although she's the foreigner, she volunteers to do work. And it's welfare kind of work. Uh, and you know what? That's good for her own dignity. It's good for yours. It's good for mine. Something good about that. Okay? Naomi encouraged her to go. Uh, the end of verse 2. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. In verse 3, so she went out and entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. She doesn't even know this. As it turns out, it's her lucky day, if you were to use the words today, you know? It's, it, it's just amazing how God puts this all together. How could luck put them in the right place at the right time, at just the right moment? How does that happen? Ruth lands in a field that, uh, where Boaz is the owner. Have you ever shared a, an experience only to find out someone else was right there? You, you went to a concert, you found out someone else was there too, like 5,000 seats away. Uh, Wanda and I went to a Memorial Day concert at the Capitol, took pictures, posted on Facebook, and looked, and great friends of ours were like 10,000 people away. At the, you know, same steps, just over there. I could see in light of the Capitol to the background, we were taking pictures, hey, they're over there. You know, we can't, we'll never find them. But we shared the experience. It's just crazy that, that, that this would happen in the moment. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. You ever had an employer do that to you? Good morning, God bless you. You ever had that happen? Like, no, get to work. <laughs> work, work, work. Yeah, and he goes, good morning, employees. God bless you. And they, have you ever had, if you're an employer, have you ever had your employees do this? And the Lord bless you. 
You ever had that? Yeah, I've had employees do other things to me, but never that. I mean, they've said things, mumbled, gestured things, you know. I ah, think I'll keep moving now. Pretend I didn't hear that. You see, what we have here in Boaz is a mighty man of valor who not only is human, but he is humane. He doesn't view his employees as property. He treats them like people, like God's people. What if we did that? How would that change the world? He blesses them. He tells them, really, he cares for them. And, and in turn, it, they bless him. That's amazing that that happens. He's not only a man of faith, but he's a man of faith with his employees. He believes the best in his employees and for his employees. Just think about it for a moment. What would happen if you walked down the row of cubicles tomorrow morning? Hey, good morning. God bless you. Lord be with you. Bless you. Keep you. May his face shine upon you. Give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. Amen. They would, they would call the security. Would they not? Yeah, they would. Yeah. Well, what would it be like if your employees felt that response back? I mean, if they were, and the Lord bless you. How cool would that be with just a work environment? Perhaps that's the reason Boaz is still single, because he lives his faith out on the edge. He's not afraid of it. He's not afraid to pray in public. He's not afraid to stake a stand for God. He's a person who blesses people and values people. He's a person who treats people with respect. It's a person you'd want to marry, quite frankly. By the way, uh, gals in the room, if you're, uh, you're single and you go on a date, first date with a guy, if the guy disses um, the waiter or waitress, you know, is, is uh, nasty to them, is short with them, or, you, you know, sometimes the, he'll treat the wait staff well, but the bus staff he doesn't treat well, or you go to a concert or, or some show and he has tickets and he rolls his eye at the ticket taker, oh, brother, what a loser, hands him a ticket. You know what that's called? That's not only called the first date, that's also called for you, the last date, because you're better than that. And the way he's treating that person, watch it. Just watch, just observe it. The way he treats that person will be the way he will treat you soon. Boaz asks the overseers of his harvesters, verse 5, who does this um, young woman belong to? Now, that sounds odd in the English, who does she belong to, but it, it's our way of saying who is she attached to or how'd she get on the field because she is on my property. So this is not overbearing on his part, although we don't have the tone to that. Uh, and the overseer responds, she's a Moabite, came back from Moab with Naomi, verse 6, now verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field, has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the in the shelter. He, he says, she's a Moabite. She's, she's an outsider. We'll see what happens. But, he, so he's not very uh, kind about her initially, but then he says, but she is a good worker. And she worked hard. Now, that's telling us, not all the workers work. <laughs> you know, is that the case in your office? Some people clock in, but never really work. Yes. Yeah, I've been around people who've retired, but keep taking a check. You ever been around people like that? He doesn't really do much. He just... Takes a check, yeah. She actually worked the field, stayed in the field, took one short rest. So the foreman is giving Boaz the report, kind of the review. And she's a person of diligence. She's a person of effort. That's appealing. Quite frankly, that's romantic. That's romantic. A person who can clear their plate, rinse it, get it in the dishwasher, I'm telling you, that's romantic. <laughs> You're saying, no, nah, I don't think it is. Okay, is slothfulness appealing to you? 
Socks on the floor, you know, towels on the floor. I mean, is that appealing to you? Oh, yeah, I love that. That's just, it's their way of saying, I, you know, they know I'm here for them. No, that's laziness. You say, well, I'll marry that guy and I'll fix him. And I say to you, good luck with that. <laughs> you'll marry him and nag him. And you'll be a nag. See, write this down if you don't write anything else. <clears throat> you do not marry a project. You marry a partner. If you marry a project, well, number one, you'll never be unemployed because <laughs> it'll be a project the rest of your life. But you don't marry someone to fix them. And when you're dating, that's about as good as they are. I mean, that's, that's them cleaned up. Okay? I'm gone from preaching to meddling now, so verse 8. <laughs> Didn't get many amens on that either, so... Oh, boy. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Why does he say my daughter? Well, probably because he's twice her age. He's probably Naomi's age. Okay? He's an older guy. Okay? Um... Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. He's saying, I want to protect you. Don't go somewhere else and work with my girls and we'll, we'll protect you. He's saying, give my field your first shot because if you don't, you could go glean another field and there wouldn't be much there. I'll make sure there's stuff there. Verse eight, verse nine now. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. In other words, they know I'm watching them. They've, they know, hands off. She's a foreign woman. They could take advantage of her. She'd never have any legal right. You get that? And he's saying, not with her. She's a distant relative. You hurt her, you hurt me. You hurt me, you ain't going to go home without a limp. See? And you know what a, a woman wants, guys, is a guy who will protect her. Okay? And he's saying, I, I've got my staff looking out for you, and whenever you get thirsty, go get a drink from the jars of water. It doesn't sound like much today because we have water, we have faucets and all that today, but she would have had to go get her water just to be in the field. He's saying, get the water that, that my guys have filled. He's saying, I, I, want, I want to be your protector, and I know you want to work the field, but I want to protect you while you do the providing. Remember, this is the time of the judges, this is a time of ultimate chaos. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. So there's self-rule and there's riots and theft. And particularly for, particularly for a foreigner, this is, this is a, a kind of a chaotic place to be and a, place, and a time to be. And so he, he says to her, my guys will look out for you. They're not going to put, put a hand on you. And I'll protect you. No one's going to bother you. I'm going to let you work, but I'm going to make sure there's stuff there. And at this, she bows down, verse 10, with her face to the ground. It's kind of a common gesture of the day. And she asked, why have you done such a favor in your eyes? That, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Why would you notice me? Why would you give a rip? And Boaz replies, and there's this, this is the guy being honest. He says, I've been told all about you, what you've done for your mother-in-law. That's beautiful. Do you get that? That's romantic. Uh, ever since the death of your husband, he knows you've been married before. So he's, he's saying, I know your story. And how you left the, uh, your father and mother and your homeland. He says, I know your sacrifice. You came to live with the people and you did not know before. Verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you've done 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's saying, our God is a good God, a God of provision, a God of protection, and I'm delighted that you're here, and may God bless you. He knows, and he begins to explain to her all of these traits about her that to him make her look so beautiful, so appealing. Have you ever met a girl, a woman who's, you know, physically beautiful, appealing, stellar hair, nails, eyes, eyebrows, everything is done, but they're just ugly. You're, they're snobbish. That is so unappealing. I have a neighbor who calls that, uh, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> isn't that a great phrase? It's a great phrase, isn't it? And so, Boaz knows this internal beauty. So he says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. And, and he basically announces, I know you're a believer because you're, you're doing what believers do. You're taking care of your mother-in-law and you're coming to a foreign land and you believe in God. In verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. She's saying, I am a total outsider. I don't deserve this. This is total grace. By the way, you could, you, you could come back to the book of Ruth and just do a study of God's grace because she's realizing, I am being graced so much. And that's her humble response, which tells you about her heart too. Really, it's huge. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread. Dip, uh, dip it in the wine vinegar. He's saying, Come, I'll share my food with you, okay? It's hospitality right there. And when, when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, which was the meal of the evening, and she ate all she wanted and had some left over, okay? When she got up to, uh, to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. I-, I love this. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. If she catches up, or if she's doing something, because she she's an outsider. She's never done this before. So whatever she does, don't reprimand her. And let her gather the sheaves and even pull some stalks out for her. He's showing favoritism to her now, okay? And pull out the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't yell at her. Don't rebuke her. This is special favor. This is Boaz. And this is the picture of God showing favor to us. He's going way beyond the call of the law, way beyond duty. He's sharing his crop. He's sharing his income at this point. And now he's piling on the benefits by saying, and occasionally I want you to drop a bundle, wink, wink, and just leave it there. You ever have people do that for you? And you know it? And they show you grace. They show you kindness. And... Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she threshed the barley, and she gathered it, and it amounted to an ephah. That's about 30 pounds. She gathered it back, uh, uh, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out uh, and gave her what was left over after she had eaten enough. She's bringing back to Naomi her leftover food, and this ephah of, of grain, which is now not enough to live on, it's more than enough to live on, and actually goes into the town and sell. They're actually making good income. Verse 19, 
Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you clean today? Where did you work? Because uh, she knows this is way too much. You, you know, your, your tip bucket is overflowing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and, she, and she says, blessed is the man who took notice of you. But Naomi has no idea. Okay? And uh, then Ruth told her mother-in-law about it. And the one whose place she had been working. The man, the name of the man I worked with, his name is um, Boaz. When she hears the name Boaz, it's just like her jaw drops, anything in her arms, if she has a bowl, she drops it. Boaz, the Lord bless him. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing you his kindness to the living and the dead. He's being kind to you, he's being kind to your husband who's in the grave and my husband who's in the grave. She added, that man is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Get this. You stop there. She says, so I went to this field. This guy was really nice to me. And by the way, he rode up on a horse. He looks really great too. <laughs> That's not in the text. You just have to kind of imagine it. But he's kind to me. But it was her diligence that makes her appealing. Get this. Women working in a field typically isn't like at their best. Wouldn't you agree? You know, if you're doing gardening work and the mayor drives by, it's not your best. You know, you're sweaty and dirty and that's not her best, but her, the diligence is what really attracts Boaz. And then when she says the name Boaz, she has no idea. She has no idea. And Naomi says, oh my gosh, God is in this. God is in this. And now Naomi's voice changes. This is a huge turning point. This is the woman who just uh, days earlier had said to Ruth, go back to your gods. And now she's really realizing God is in this. God has shown you kindness. And she knows the name Boaz. She knows the distant relative. She knows the hand of God. She knows he's a redeemer, a kinsman, near kinsman. And, and what we call in this text a guardian redeemer. In other words, he could marry into the family. And Levite law said that when Ruth's husband died, she used to marry the brother and have children to him. And, and the name of the children would be in her first husband's name. That was the law. Uh, but the other brother had died, so there's no brothers to have. So now you're at this kinsman now. You're out there looking for the next closest of kin. That happens all the time with wills, right? People have died off and they want to see who's next in line to get the will. And... And that's what they're doing for the sake of the family. And so now they realize this is a guy who could redeem us, get our property back, continue our name. This is huge. But the good news doesn't end there. Verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, <laughs> she's sweetening it now, isn't it? He even said to me, stay with my workers till they finish harvesting all my grain. And, you know, I always think of sexy lines like, have I met you before? You know, she says, Oh, yeah, he said to me, stay with me, work in my field. That was a come on, okay? Work my field, baby, you know. Whoa. He even said to me, harvest with me in my grain. It's at this point we need to do like a Lou Rawls Lady Love or some song, don't we? I just feel that coming on. Anyway, Naomi said to her, verse 22, to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good of you, my daughter, to go with the women who work with him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. In other words, 
it's really true. You, you could be harmed. And Naomi now is, she's thinking, keep Ruth in this field. Don't let anything mess this up. Verse 23, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, that's the end of chapter two. Next week, we're gonna see the engagement. They're gonna fall in love, get engaged. Chapter four, they're gonna get married. That's why you need to be here for all four weeks to get the big story. But we're gonna stop it here at the end of two. I know, all together, ah, jeez. Come back next week. We'll pick up chapter three. But here's, here, here's the point. You can close your Bible, but keep taking notes. Let me tell you what romance is. Here it is from the chapter. This is what we're pulling out of the text. It is loyalty. It is others-oriented. It is character through and through. It is who you are when no one's looking. That's what character is. Who you are when no one's looking. Ruth thought she was in a field and no one knew her from boo. Yet she did the right thing when she didn't know anybody. But you know what? Someone did know her. And when he rode by and saw her character shining through, that was appealing. Romance is being an optimist in a very negative world. It's being a person of valor and personal faith. It's modeling the faith. It's watching out for the people around you and, and showing the virtue and in your inner conviction, even when no one else does. But it's also what Boaz does by announcing his faith and being a man of valor and being respectable, but he's respectful at the same time and loyal to his workers and yet loyal to his family line. People person, blessing people, generous without a, a question. The list could go on. That's the inner beauty that you want. But this is, here, here's the thing. People always go, I'm looking for Mr. Perfect, or I'm looking for Miss Perfect. But you know what? If they find you, what will they find? That's the question. Because, and even if you never marry, or if you're married and you're in a situation that's just mediocre, understand this. Your beauty could come from the inner core of who you are based upon your faith in God, and you could become a different person. Uh, jot this one down, ladies. First uh, Peter 3. Just the ladies write this one down. 3 and 4, listen. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles to worry of gold jewelry or fine clothes. He's not saying don't wear fine clothes or fine jewelry. No, but that's not what should be the appealing piece to you. Rather, it should be your inner self, unfading beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of, worth, of great worth in God's eyes. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Now, guys, write this one down. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. Guys, you're, the woman you're searching for doesn't have to have her. You're probably not going to meet her at the nail salon or at the mall. Ladies, I'm telling you, you're probably not going to meet the guy of your dreams at the food court at the mall. If you do, I mean, that's, why, why is he hanging there? He, he should be running his business. You'd be doing good. And you might meet the man of your dreams, woman of your dreams, at a nail salon or hair salon. And I'm not against any of that. Guys. <laughs> First Timothy 6, listen to these words, just the guys. But you, man of God, you flee from all this. He's saying all the greed, all the hostility, impurities of life. Flee all that. Run away from it. 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You fight the good fight of faith. You take hold of eternal life, which God has called you, and you make the, a good, your confession good in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, you man up. You be a godly man. You step it up. And when you do that, that's appealing. And if it's not appealing, then it's not a, that's not a woman you want anyway. But if you hold your faith out there and live your faith out well, even if you, uh, the partner in your life never comes, remember, you have to live with yourself the rest of your life. So you live to God's glory, but really, it's to your own good. The man of valor is probably not out just hanging. The woman of valor is probably not just out hanging. They're probably doing something productive with their lives. And so should you. Now, before we go, I'm going to tell you there's another side of the story. You know how there's a train track? There's always two rails on the train track. I've been talking about the very human side of the track the whole time. But I'm going to tell you one more thing before we go. You may not see the other rail, but what God is giving to us in the book of Ruth is another miraculous story that runs parallel to the physical story we've been talking about. And the story is God's incredible love for you. I mean incredible love for you. God is giving us a word picture that he loves us with an everlasting kind of love. This is living, and this story of Ruth is the living, actual love. But he's giving to us another word picture. He wants you to know, even 1,200 years before Jesus came, that he takes notice of you, and he takes note of you, and then he covers you, he extends grace towards you, and then he demonstrates his love and his favor for you, just like Boaz did for Ruth. God does for you. He allows you into his employ to minister to you, and then he blesses you. It's exactly what Boaz did with Ruth. Even though you are far away and you feel like I'm a foreigner, I'm far from Jesus, that's the way Ruth felt. I am so far from you people. That's the way she would view them. As she viewed herself as an outsider. And yet Boaz just kept pulling her in and pulling her in. And how did he do that? By loving on her. And that's what God does with us. And, and eventually you're, you're finally going to come to the realization that God really does love you. Even though you don't believe it necessarily at the beginning. God loves you, like Jeremiah said, with an everlasting kind of love. So even an outsider would say, how in the world could you love me? And yet God, like Boaz, just doesn't stop. So now it's time. This is your day to receive the love, to turn to Christ in personal faith, to welcome him into your own heart, to forgive you of your sins, and for you to come into the family. And he'll take you into the family, just like Boaz is going to do with Ruth next week and the week after that. He'll take you into the family. He'll give you his name. He'll wipe out your debt of sin. He'll give you a great home and a great inheritance. What's not to love about that? Understand this. The main romancer of this story is God, and the one being romanced is you. And when we get that down, we will see, oh my, how he loves us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Would you stand with me as we pray? Your prayer may be, Dear God, I am, uh, I am outside, like Ruth, I'm outside, but it's time for me to trust Christ, and I, I welcome him into my life today. I need Christ as my Savior. Others of us may just be overwhelmed, really, with a sense that, oh my God, how you love me.
And I didn't see that before. And so, dear Father in heaven, drill down deep into our hearts to know the profound love that you have towards us, that we are able to grasp it, how deep and how wide, how amazing it really is, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are now viewed as insiders, no longer outside. And Lord, for your grace towards us, we say thank you. Thank you for this story and this demonstration. What a great word picture. It really is amazing grace towards us. May we be the people who love you back, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Church says amen. Amen. Amen.